Welcome to the Stereoactive Movie Club. My name is Jeremiah, and I'm here with Alicia, Laura, Mia, and Steven. And we're going to be talking about the 1953 film Tokyo Story, directed by Yasujiro Ozu. But first, let's introduce ourselves. So Alicia, other than Tokyo Story, have you watched any movies since we last recorded? I watched Judas and the Black Messiah this week, um, which we did already discuss on the podcast. But I'll just, I'll just say I really, really loved it. I thought it was great. And that's it. Laura, how about you? I watched Coming to America. <laughs> like coming with a two, the letter. Yep, I mean, that's the, the right. Number two? You got okay, it. Gotcha. You got it. You totally got what I what they did there. Um, I was. I thought it was very satisfying. Um, as you know, lowbrow, the kind of film you want. It was funny. You can't really capture the magic of the original, but I got everything I needed. I had two points of contention that I'd like to mention. Salt and Peppa were in it, and it just it's frustrating because somehow they just did a lifetime movie and they've completely erased Cinderella from the whole legacy and it was just salt and pepper in this movie and it reminded me of that and just made me upset and then at the end there's spoiler alert um a wedding uh, scene we ah! wedding scene okay. you don't know who it is that's getting married okay and the woman cannot walk in the dress like she's literally immobile and they could have easily figured out a workaround, but it's just embarrassing for like five seconds. And there you go. OK. And Mia. So the reason I was screaming about the spoilers is because we watched Coming to America, the OG one in preparation for watching Coming to America. Um and I thought it was great. It was so funny. I haven't seen it since I was a kid. I very much enjoyed it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so now we need to watch the new one. Yeah, you do. I thought it held up uh, better to today's standards than Trading Places. I'll say that. Definitely. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, and then I also watched another round, the Mads Mikkelsen Danish film that just got a surprise nomination for Best Director at the Oscars. Um, and I also saw Star Trek The Motion Picture for... I don't know how many times I've seen that before, but I liked it more this time than I did it the last time I watched it. I go back and forth on it, but I like it. <laughs> Are you going through the Star Trek movies again? Because I thought you did a Star Trek movie last week. Yeah, I watched Wrath of Khan a couple weeks back, and then, I don't know, I, I was recovering from a migraine and decided to watch this for some reason. Uh, Laura. I'm really sorry about your migraine. And do you guys know that um, the weekend song where he's talking about I'm the motherfucking star boy and he's he's like he calls it the Wraith of Khan in the breakdown. Girls get loose when they hear the song. And it's just the cutest thing ever. <laughs> <laughs> and Stephen, how about you? Um, I watched the 39 steps, Ooh. Um, which mm-hmm. I had, I was they were doing. a um, I, I have TCM, so I've been watching a lot of TCM movies lately. And um, that's an Alfred Hitchcock movie. It was made in 1935. I really enjoyed it. I didn't know anything really about it. I've heard about the movie a lot. And um, it was much funnier than I expected. And it was kind of, it was really kind of a romp and enjoyable. And I was kind of a surprise. I don't know why. But anyway, yeah, I loved it. Is, is a romp the same thing as a bop these days? <laughs> <laughs> so for those who may not have heard our first Several episodes now? When does it go from two to several? I don't know. This is a podcast where the five of us are discussing movies that have appeared on Sight and Sound Magazine's poll of the quote-unquote greatest movies ever made that comes out every 10 years. And we're basically using it as our own prompt to watch some classic movies ahead of the next poll, which will be out in 2022. 
We invite listeners to take part in the discussion by watching along and sharing their opinions in our Facebook group, by emailing, or by leaving us a voice message on our anchor.fm show page. And again, this time we're talking about Tokyo Story, but before we get into the history and background of the movie, what did each of us know about the movie going into this? Who's seen it before, if anybody, or what were you expecting, if anything? And Alicia, since you picked this one, why don't you start us off and also tell us why you picked it? Uh, and I had never seen this movie before. I had never heard of this movie before. Um, and I picked it because it was the first movie on the list <laughs> um, because I had, my other two picks were already chosen. Um, and I really knew almost nothing about it. I Googled it one time before <laughs> watching the movie. That's it. Mia, how about you? I'd never heard of Tokyo Story before. I kept confusing it in my head with In the Mood for Love, which is set in Hong Kong, not Tokyo. Um, but yeah had no idea and then I just knew it was about a family so then that also kept making me think of that movie that Aquafina was in that I'm blinking on the name now the farewell the farewell, farewell yes um which is excellent if folks haven't seen it okay and Stephen how about you um I'd never heard of this movie before and um so I had no expectations walking into it there you go Laura how about you well, I worked at a video store in the 90s and I read up and have written for film blogs. So I've gleaned that Ozu is an important director and that if if I, you know, didn't give it its due in end time, I would just be a big loser sneeze. So that's what I knew before going into this. I'm pretty much in the same boat. I, I'd heard of Ozu. I actually had thought I'd seen one of his movies before, but then looking back at his filmography, I hadn't. So this is my first one, but I knew he was like one of those important filmmakers that filmmakers and critics both really like, and I just needed to get around to it. So this was a great excuse to do that. And I'm glad to have done it. Um, so released in 1953 and very loosely based on a 1937 American film called Make Way for Tomorrow, Tokyo Story follows a retired couple living in a town in the southern part of Japan as they visit their grown children who mostly live in Tokyo. Over the course of the film, the couple's children have trouble managing time to spend with their parents while their daughter-in-law, the widowed wife of the couple's son who died in the war, does all she can to make them feel welcome and cared for. Eventually, the couple return home and the mother falls ill and dies soon after prompting all the children to gather in their hometown to mourn. Directed by Yasujiro Ozu, whose career as a director began in 1927 with silent films, it is considered emblematic of the themes and style he'd already developed and would continue to develop over the course of the next decade before he died, and also includes many actors he worked with often, perhaps most notably Chishu Ryu as the retired patriarch and Setsuko Hara as the caring daughter-in-law. Even though Rashomon, directed by fellow Japanese filmmaker Akira Kurosawa, had introduced many people in the West to Japanese cinema a few years before, Ozu's work was deemed, quote, too Japanese by some, including, I read after I wrote this, uh, the studio itself that made the movie. Um, and it did not begin to gain attention in the West until a few years after this film's release. Filmmaker and critic Lindsay Anderson, after seeing it in London in 1957, wrote a review for Sight & Sound magazine titled Two Inches Off the Ground, likening the film to the idea that to achieve a Zen state is to experience the world in the same way as before, but feel as if you're two inches off the ground. 
and the film became more popular in the United States after a screening in New York in 1972. Newsweek's review said it was, quote, like a Japanese paper flower that is dropped into water and then swells to fill the entire container with its beauty. The film has been on the Sight and Sound Critics Poll of the Greatest Films Ever Made three times, number three in 1992, number five in 2002, then back to number three again in 2012, just behind Vertigo and Citizen Kane. And the Sight and Sound Director's Poll ranked it as the greatest film ever made in 2012, just ahead of 2001 A Space Odyssey and Citizen Kane, which tied for second. And for a bit of context about what movies were popular here in the United States when Tokyo Story came out in Japan, From Here to Eternity was the big Oscar winner from 1953, while Cinemascope biblical epic The Robe was the top-grossing movie in North America. So Alicia, since this was your pick, again, uh, why don't you start us off with your thoughts on the film? Uh, Did it meet your expectations or live up to your memories of it? Yeah, I loved this movie. Um, I really, really ended up liking it. It took me a little while to get into it because it is very slow paced. Um, But once once the story really started to unfold about halfway through um, and then the way it ended, I just, I really, really, really enjoyed it. I kind of thought that the slow pacing in the beginning, it kind of felt to me, um, having visited Japan once, um, there's a lot of like formality and etiquette. There's a lot of like politeness. It's it's very, very important there. Like there's no litter on the streets and there's no trash cans on the streets. People line up to get on the train. Everything is very sort of ceremonial. Um, and I felt like, there was a lot of that in the beginning of the film and that kind of made it a little bit difficult to understand what was going on or why, why I should be paying attention to what was going on. But once that started to drop away and the conversations got more real between everybody, um, I just thought it was really moving and, and I enjoyed it. The biggest question I had though, um, after I was finished with it, was um, what do you all think drove Noriko, the daughter-in-law, to be more solicitous of the parents than their own children? I wasn't sure if it was like a shared grief over the loss of her husband, who was their son, or do you think she felt guilty that she didn't grieve his death more because they had mentioned a few times that she was probably happier without him being around? Or do you think she was sort of hung up on him and couldn't move on? Just wondering everybody's thoughts on that. I mean, without getting too personal, I thought a lot about that. And I, you know, it's just, she was such a beautiful character. So I don't want to take anything away from her humility or how she acted. But it's a lot easier to have compassion and unbiased feeling to the, you know, the aged people who are getting older than when you grow up with them and, you know, the, the way the story was told and how we learned the father was a drunk and he wasn't always that nice to the mom. It was all these just very subtle. Mm-hmm. The film is just incredibly subtle. I think the kids just being damaged growing up under that made it so much harder to react. So I think it was just her distance from those times that was it made it easier. She was just being human. Whereas it almost seemed like the kids were just not, they were being just complete selfish brats. 
I don't know. I felt like maybe it was a little bit of a facade on her part because there were certain times, and I don't know if it was just with the storytelling, she would just smile and she would say these things that were just such an anathema to like how you really felt like she was feeling inside. You know, like I think it was just like about life being a disappointment and she sort of said it was like a glazed smile on her face. So for a while I was thinking like maybe she was just one of those people that knew how to do the right thing and she knew how to act in society for older people and that was kind of the pushing thing with her. Um, so she decided that she was going to, you know, be a really generous person and that's where she kind of stopped but she never really considered her own feelings about it at any time. It was more like being solicitous. And so it's like she did like them, but I felt like a lot of it was just her internalized way of dealing with things. It was just like she felt like she needed to put this forward because she felt like she needed to be a nice person because she kept coming back and saying that she felt like she wasn't. And but it wasn't outwardly. You never saw anything like that about her, even in private or even when she was at her job. So for me, I felt like it was very internal for her and even the outside people didn't get to see So that. to Alicia's question, do you think it was guilt that was partly driving her, Stephen? I think maybe, I think maybe that would be, that would, you know, maybe she felt like she needed to put this up even though she didn't miss her husband at all, but she did like them because they seemed like they were sweet people or they just needed it knowing that she wasn't, they weren't getting it from, the mom and dad weren't getting it from their own children with the visit. So she felt like she needed to step it up a little bit, but yeah, I think you're right. You're probably right about that. I, I, th I think what you said though, Laura makes a lot of sense too, as a potential uh, possibility. I, I think it makes sense that basically what I, what I thought you were saying was that like, when you don't grow up with someone, it's easier to like them <laughs> in their old age. Right. Yeah. So <laughs> I, I definitely think we've all probably had that experience and, and can relate to that in some way. Like, you know, you don't know, all the ins and outs of what made them a complicated person. So it's easy to just see them for the more surface level niceties that they might have. Um, and she might have this romanticized view of them, not really living near them or having spent much time with them seemingly even. Um, and I, it doesn't seem like she's seen them since her husband died or since the war, maybe. I, I don't think that's entirely clear, right? But I also think the other side of that, um, flipping it around is, that the parents, like Alicia, I think you were saying that uh, they, um, I, f I forget exactly how you said it, but th it seemed to me like they were trying to make her feel better too. Like I'd mm -hmm. never necessarily believed that they thought their son was a piece of shit. Like they kind of <laughs> made it sound like. I thought it was maybe that they were like, oh, we don't want you to feel bad. So we're saying this so you don't feel bad about moving on you, like just think of him that way so you can move on from him but i also again like i don't think that's something that's there in the text of it but it's something that you could interpret in and i that's what i kind of like about the movie is that the whole thing is sort of open to interpretation based on your own experience and feeling mm -hmm. there, there's so much that just doesn't get said or that gets said in these very oblique ways and it is kind of up to you to sort of put your own emotions into that which actually I loved yeah I thought about it from like a few different perspectives um I definitely agree I think it's always easier to be nice to people who aren't related to you and I think you know no matter what like because I don't know if they ever said how long she and her son were married for before he died but I know it's been eight years since he's been missing at least and but like 
you're you're always going to be more polite to like your mother-in-law than your own mom no matter how long you've been part of their family or something I think for most people at least and um so I think that is definitely part of it I also thought that in this way you know so much of this movie to me was about okay it's post-war post Hiroshima and Nagasaki they're you know, all these Western values and ideals are coming to Japan. So people are more focused on their careers. Like, I don't know, and I've never been to Japan, but this is, I imagine, one of the first generations to like move so far away from their families. Like I was like, oh, wow, like all the kids pretty much have moved to Tokyo to the big city where there's jobs and economic opportunity, which, you know, happens all over the world. And So to me, the children represented very much like this, the new generation forward looking, not looking back towards their parents, not looking back towards the past. And I kind of felt like with her character, um, with Noriko, that she maybe was still like stuck in the past because of her husband dying or going missing at this past point. So in a way, she was still this like tie towards the past and was acting in that way then. Not that she was necessarily conscious of it. But that's why she felt so loyal to the parents and was like more considerate of them and was like putting this family ahead of her job um, throughout the film. I also thought maybe because she has experienced the grief of losing her husband and so she kind of is already disappointed by life that she's a little more sympathetic to people that are (laughs) older and also a little bit disappointed with life. which I don't think you can help. I think just getting older, that happens. I don't think, I think there's a lot of talk about their kids disappointing them and the grandkids being kind of rude and stuff. But in the end, I think everybody's kind of disappointed with mm-hmm. life when they're older and she, she's already kind of experienced that. So maybe that was part of it too. I thought that was a good point though, Mia. I, I hadn't thought of it that way of like, she's basically stuck in the pre-war mindset and kind of represents that i could see that though can i say too i was shocked and appalled by how rude the grandchildren were oh my god <laughs> they're brats and when it just smacks them me too from like the <laughs> get-go too like but i, I, I really loved it. how they dealt with it in the script and they're like some people like their grandchildren better than their children who do you like better yeah, yeah. <laughs> i think i like my children better even though they're not so great i'm paraphrasing uh, well, I, I think you bringing that up, Laura, reminds me that one of the things I found interesting about the way this movie unfolded was it felt like so much of the movie was them avoiding saying things and still communicating that somehow in mm-hmm. in between the lines. And so you're able to kind of get on the same page with them. And then they might say it later, but you're like already know that that's there, you know, it, and I thought it was just an interesting way to tell a story about people of kind of letting you catch up to them before being so explicit about it, but sometimes being explicit at the same time, just Mm. later down the road. I thought it was, Mm -hmm. I thought it was interesting. It unfolded. Yeah. It was um, like that Japanese flower that that uh, that guy said. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I'd still like to know everyone's straight up take of the film. What is yours? (laughs) Um, Well, I, you know, subtle, I agree with, Alicia, that it was it took some getting into. Like you had to, you know, I had to pause and really just let myself get taken through the film. I was really the camera didn't move much. Um, I just it was 
I really got into it in the sense that it wasn't, it was such a well-told story with such relatable themes that it's just, doesn't matter that it was in the fifties. This is a story that could be told anywhere at any time. Um, I was really interested in what I learned was called um, the pillow shots, quote unquote, that um, a critic who was reviewing Ozu noticed and then coined the term because he has all these, you know, if they're very similar to establishing shots, but in Ozu, the way he does it in sort of a poem that he terms it pillow shots. And I think that's such a beautiful term because they were, there was always this sort of interlude of shots that made it just quite beautiful. And in the way the scenes were as well, there was no fear of the silence in between sentences or pauses. It reminded me contemporary like of Jarmish and how he makes films um, a lot. And I like that about it as well. Do I wanna like party with this film again? And is it my desert island movie? No. Mm-hmm. but I definitely appreciated a lot of it and learned a lot from it. Kind of similar to Lauren and Alicia. Like, I thought it was so good. Definitely a masterpiece of cinema. Um, it definitely took me a little while to get into it. You know, it's slow. And we watched it in two chunks because we started watching it Friday night and just after like an hour or so, I was like, okay, like <laughs> if we're going to talk about this, I need to come back to this tomorrow morning when it's light outside and I'm a bit more alert. Um, but yeah, I mean, I just thought it was like very meditative, very beautiful. I, you know, I feel like the lingering on these different shots, you know, you kind of have that experience where you start to zone out a little bit and then come back to it and zone out again. And I thought all the fi- all the family dynamics and the way that so much is left unsaid uh, you could just interpret so much into these different interactions. And I kind of feel like, and you know, everyone has some kind of weird family dynamic or whatever. And I was like, okay, no matter what your story is, you could probably <laughs> read it into like one of these characters. Did I see my own family in this? <laughs> Not going to say in case they're listening to this podcast. <laughs> um, but yeah, I just thought it was like so beautiful. And I just, another thing I wanted to say too is, um, I think, Stephen, you were saying like she would smile so much when she was saying these things that was so incongruous. I noticed other characters doing that, too. So I just assumed it was a like a Japanese cultural thing of like, even though, though you're saying something that's like unpleasant or kind of negative or something like that, you're just still going to smile. Um, so I don't know, like, Alicia, I know you've been to Japan or other people know more if, if they notice that or thought about it and stuff, too. Um, I I didn't have to, unfortunately, I never had to deal with anything in Japan that was like about family grief or anything like that. So I don't know. But everybody was very, very friendly and polite when I was there. Yeah, I was wondering if it was just like a translation thing. Like if I, you know, if I'd actually spoken the language, would it have translated differently? Mm -hmm. Because there's some things that were said, they're just Mm -hmm. like, wow, is that really what she said? Or, you know, I I just was thinking maybe that was it. Um, But overall, um, back to what the movie kind of represented and was, I think that's what I liked most about it. What Mia said is just like everybody saw their family in this, no matter who it was or how many people are in your family, you've seen people like this. And, you know, unfortunately, most of my parents passed away. And in certain respects, a lot of that, (laughs) a lot of what had happened in that movie kind of reminded me of of different stages of grief for everybody. So I feel like Mm -hmm a lot of it was sort of like that. It was just sort of like people were understanding that, you know, time isn't forever and how you deal with it is sort of something that you dealt with as it happens instead of 
gradually. So it, it was just kind of an interesting way to kind of unfold everything with the stories. It's just sort of like everybody's reactions were different. So I enjoyed it. I had the same issue, Stephen, about, because um, my father passed in 2015. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I felt like one of the bratty kids, honestly, because I had such a strange relationship with him. And there's all this water under the bridge that's just never going to, there's no such thing as closure when it comes to certain things. But there were hundreds of people there that were just constantly just telling me how he had such a positive effect on their lives as a, um, a sponsor in meetings and just so many accolades, so much love going around that I just, it was, it was, it was, re, it was sort of watching this film made me relive a lot of those moments. And mm -hmm. that I felt wasn't the same. Easy. I felt the same as well. Yeah. Um, I also really enjoyed it and I didn't know what I was expecting going into it. I, I knew that Ozu, well, little I did know of him was basically that his movies are sort of like, I don't even know if deliberate is the right word, but they're a different pace than, than what you might be used to if you grew up on Hollywood movies. Um, and I really enjoyed it though. I, 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 it took me a little bit as Mia was saying to kind of, uh, connect with it but once i did it was sort of almost like a retroactive thing where at some point i was like oh i'm really into this i didn't realize i was and <laughs> it sort of made the whole thing kind of um catch up for me if that makes sense and it's yeah. also rare just um for me these days to find like a classic movie that i can watch for the first time and be like how did i not see this before because i've just like watched a lot of the ones on this list that we're going from, especially. So, and this was the first one in this series that I haven't seen before. And it was just sort of like, uh, it's nice to just be able to see something new sometimes or something unfamiliar and enjoy it. And I really liked that about it, that it's just different than a Hollywood movie. <laughs> yeah. I love that too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I like how the storytelling just sort of unfolded on itself. It's just like you had to really, because I, I struggled to pay attention at first because I was getting used to how everything was kind of structured and it was completely different than anything else I'd seen. Mm -hmm. um, so after I got used to it, it was more character driven than, than I liked and I liked the dialogue. So I did pay attention to it a lot more and I paid attention to more of the, the deliberate, you know, close ups of people. You really got to study their faces and understand their emotions a little bit more than you would if it was just a movie that was like overpowering with different angles and music was going all over the place. It just was, it was a better told story, I think, because it was so character driven. I was fascinated by how much housekeeping was done. In this <laughs> I mean, these mostly interior shots, except when we were doing the pillow shots for what I remember of the film, except the, when the grandmother took the, the grand, the brat for a walk. Um, there's so much folding and in real time dusting and, <laughs> walking up and down the stairs and just the, the narrowness of, of each like abode was just really interesting. Mm -hmm. um, I was obsessed with their dusting actually. <laughs> so much dusting. It was so cool. So they have these, you know, for people besides the five of us that might not have seen this movie, they have these like, you know, maybe foot long sticks with then fabric tied to it and they just go around like not like dusting like we do but like hitting everything with them and yeah. like every character does it I think at some point or maybe not the uh you know the matriarch and the patriarch but like all the younger women do it and so it's clearly like this is how they dust in Japan or at least how they did it in the 50s um but yeah I was just very 
very into that. So I'm glad that you um, noticed too, because I said something. How many Shamaya. of us dusted? How many of us dusted our houses after we watched this movie? I'm just curious because no, I know no. I did. I did not. I'm glad a duster. I want a Japanese duster. I'm not I doing do it that way. That. I have too oh, much badly. junk to do it that way. It would just everything would go flying. So I, could do it. I was I, just like, "You dirty bitch, go get a duster." <laughs> <laughs> Who did you guys think was like the the sort of the rudest of their children? <laughs> sort of the worst of the plot. I thought the eldest daughter was for me personally. Oh, I thought she... you were talking about the grandchildren. I'm sorry. Yeah, so did I. Yeah, me too. <laughs> oh, no, the, 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 their children, their adult children. I agree. I thought that she was. I just thought she was such an asshole like the whole time. And when yeah. she told them they couldn't stay there because she was yes. having a meeting in their room, I was like about <laughs> to lose my mind in rage. Because like the son to me just seems sort of the son that's mainly in the movie, not the doctor. Yeah, yeah the doctor. Mm -hmm. He just more seemed to me like just like kind of like not with it the whole time. Like it was just like kind of distracted and stuff. And but I was like, okay, he has these kids and his wife seemed more like, you know, interested in like being a good daughter-in-law to the um parents and stuff so i was kind of like okay he's just maybe like a man and like to be stereotypical about that but yeah the beautician salon <laughs> owner woman i just yeah. thought and then even her reaction and i know there's like probably like so much buried trauma there but even when the dad comes back and is drunk like she's just so like mm -hmm. oh my god you know like and I get it, you know, but he's just... gone through it a lot, though, don't you think? Like it felt felt like she was almost regressing into being a kid because she brought it up a few times before then. Yeah. So when that happened, she was just like, "Here we go again." And he's visiting; he can't be on his best behavior. Yeah. So I, I noticed that the families were essentially patriarchal, except for all of their children were very strong-minded. Like that woman, the beautician, she or however you say her name, she was in charge of him. She was in charge of the household. She ate yeah. the cakes that he bought mm -hmm. for the family. You know, the doctor wouldn't let his wife leave the house mm. to take them out. You know, they, they, and Kaizo in Osaka, he also was just completely 100% all in his own head and what did what he needed to do and basically missed his mother's death. Mm -hmm. So they mm -hmm. were all such strong, selfish personalities. So it's just fascinating to me. Um, I think, though, the right answer is the dead son is the rudest for being dead. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't even have the consideration to be dead. I mean, really. He's just a mystery. Yeah, That's yeah. True. yeah, they're not even sure he's dead. He's just probably dead. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They said they never. Yeah, they were just assuming he's dead. He could be, you know, living somewhere. Yeah, he might be that guy down. who was still alive on an island thinking they were still fighting the war until like two years ago oh. or whatever. He's the Don Draper of this story. He, yes, yes. He took someone else's. <laughs> Maybe. I thought Daddy. for the record, too, that the oldest grandson was definitely the rudest. He's older. Oh, yeah. He knows better. And I was like shocked by the rudeness, especially since I know how much Japan and Japanese culture are like you respect your elders. And so I just couldn't believe that this is, I think, the first time they're meeting their grandparents. And I get it. Like, I was a brat to my grandparents. My grandmother, the one who is still alive, probably still thinks I'm a brat. Like, you know, I get it that that's how kids act. But I was just so shocked at how they were acting and that the parents were like, stop it. But like, weren't really interceding at all. No, yeah. there was no discipline there. Yeah, I was surprised by that, too. I, I mean, my mom would be of that same generation that the 
kids are from, you know, parents fought in the war, but like she, if she had ever spoken that way to her own grandparents, I know there's no way she would have gotten away. There's no way her parents would have just been like, relax, calm down, go in another room. <laughs> like not a chance. And me neither. Yeah. Not me, me neither. Don't you think that that was sort of indicative of like their whole family dynamics? It was sort mm -hmm. of like this had also happened when those kids were little. And that's why they are the way that they are now, because they can't seem to be able to parent correctly like that. Exactly. I don't know. That's what I thought when I saw them. It was just sort of like, oh, this is like a story that's going to continue. And once yep. they have kids, they'll be the same way. And then their parents are going to talk about them like that. So I thought it was kind of also indicative of the what the sort of the story they were trying to tell about the westernization of of things. I think we kind of touched on that a little bit earlier, too. Um, yeah, I thought it was part of that. And I was also thought it was interesting how some of the women were wearing kimonos almost all the time. And then other ones were wearing like Western, Westernized clothing most of the time. Um, I wasn't sure. At, at first I thought, oh, the younger kids will all be wearing Westernized clothing, but then the oldest, the oldest daughter wasn't. So I was kind of curious about that choice too. I think there's sort of a uniform that you're supposed to wear to an office. I think oh, maybe. Eureka was not at work. I think she wore more traditional or at least that's that was what how I took it but when she was like at the funeral well I mean when she came home when she came to the village when before the mother actually died she was just wearing maybe she was just still wearing her work clothes but I don't think we saw her even when they went out on the town she was wearing like western clothing mm -hmm. so I don't know if that was a work thing or what yeah, I'm not sure that pops a hole in my hole she's stuck in the past thing because she's wearing all these modern clothes <laughs> maybe the other daughter is stuck in the past because she's the one that does wear the the kimono and she seems to have a lot of those childhood resentments still festering yeah right. mm. and it was interesting too with the the um beautician salon you know at the times when they show her having a client it's very like pin curls like these very mm -hmm. 1950s mm -hmm. western hairstyles and she had short kind of wavy hair too but anyways yeah it's like you know obviously this beauty salon with this modern American hairstyles. But yeah, the owner who I agree totally wears the pants like is very much equal to I assume the brother who is a doctor was the oldest brother. Um, as he seemed kind of like the boss of everybody else. But you know, when they're making plans to like go to the funeral and stuff or go to rush to their mother's side, it was very like, they're clearly equals figuring this out together. Like he's not her older brother telling her what to do. And she's also not consulting her husband about any of it. <laughs> yeah. And they're making the spa reservations. Like she was the one who kind of mm -hmm. spearheaded that whole thing and he mm -hmm. went along with it. So that's the, the dynamic I think they always had. It seems like. So I had a question. Um, so related to what I was saying before about this, not feeling like a Hollywood movie. Um, like when we discussed the magnificent Ambersons, Laura, was calling that a melodrama, which I think is correct. And in so many ways, I think this is the antithesis of a movie like that. So I'm wondering which aspects of either the storytelling or craft that are different from what we may be used to, everybody took note of, and whether those differences were things you appreciated, which it sounds like is probably the case, or somehow made you disconnect from the film, or maybe it was one than the other later on. Um, yeah, I think just like as I what I already said, I think the pacing was and and also I think Laura mentioned too, just like the sort of mm -hmm. the stillness of the shots and it being kind of 
the camera kind of being low to the ground or something, it did make it a little hard to, to concentrate. I think the subtitles too, for me personally, <laughs> like it forces me to like stare at the screen screen a little bit, which I don't necessarily always do when I'm watching English movies. Um, so yeah, that was definitely different. It did, it did, it did make it a little harder for me to, to see what, figure out what was going on at first, but eventually it worked. It all worked for me. I definitely thought it was very, I mean, I liked it more than the Magnificent Ambersons and I definitely thought it was very anti that in all of these ways. I mean, there's never a big emotion. I mean, there are emotional scenes, but there's not like, and there's no crying there's no, I guess it, well, okay, I'm lying. I guess when the night that the daughter-in-law and the mother bond and they both lay there with the tears streaming down the daughter-in-law's face. Um, and the funeral. And the funeral, yeah. But there's no like big, at least in my opinion, no big like climatic scene. There's not like some showdown between the generations. Like the parents, you know, the grandparents slash parents are never like, what the heck like why are you being so shitty to us we came all this way to see you and stuff like there's no big thing like that um so there's no in my opinion melodrama even though there certainly is plenty of drama I also felt very much like watching this like I didn't feel like I was watching a movie for a lot of it I felt like I was just watching people living like it just felt so natural and flowing and all of that whereas like I said, when we talked about Magnificent Ambersons, I felt like the whole time I was like in this like fever dream where I was like, why is everyone overreacting? Like, why is there this big thing? Why aren't people just like talking to each other? And with this one, it just kind of felt like, oh, everything is like flowing. Even times when I was like, oh my God, talk to each other because this is like (laughs) not a good family dynamic here. Yeah, I felt like the pace was just deliberate and everything that was said was deliberate. I never felt like there was filler at all. It just felt like a story. It didn't feel like there was an arc necessarily. It was just sort of like, this is kind of a snapshot, even though something dramatic happens at the end, it still is sort of like they're living and they're going to continue to be this way. There wasn't a catharsis where like the older daughter was suddenly like, wow, I should be a better person. Like there was never anything like that. She was who she was. And we understand why she was the way she was. And maybe that was what was best about it. It was just like, you sort of understood why these kids were the way they were and the way that the world is the way that it is because of how they were, the parents were. Stephen, I find it interesting that you say there's no filler um, because I, I mean, I think that's like sort of a derogatory term, so I wouldn't call this stuff that, but I think some people would see those pillow shots that Laura was talking about as filler. I think some people would see the fact that the way they go from scene to scene or even shot to shot sometime is instead of cutting where you normally would in a Hollywood movie, there's always like this extra beat where you, you're going to watch this person leave the room and then we're going to sit there for a second. You wouldn't do that in a Hollywood movie. And I think so much of that goes to uh, what makes this movie work and gave us the effect that it seems like we all had from it of like all that stuff is getting out of the way of the people and them just being there and you watching them. You know, it's sort of like taking away the trappings of a movie as we know it, the, the, the formal trappings of a movie in so many ways that I, I just found it to be interesting um, and it, disorienting at first, um, like especially with the houses, like I mm-hmm. watching them go from room to room and up the stairs and down the stairs. I was like, I have no idea where they are, the way they cut the movie. It, it crosses the 180 degree line that's like of editing where 
it doesn't seem continuous. It just seems like they're going all over the place. But uh, once you get used to it, it's just kind of fascinating to, to watch and really works. Filler is an interesting way to talk about what was happening in terms of the time of the beat while someone leaves the room to go upstairs. We wait until they get upstairs before the shot begins. I think it was just sort of a um, realistic approach to making it. Mm-hmm. Um, and and going back to the pace of the film as opposed to potentially calling it filler. Not that you were using it in a derogatory way at all. No, I'm saying yeah. most people would call that filler oh, if they I weren't see. into this yeah. movie, but it doesn't feel like filler here. That's no. kind of what I was trying to say. Yeah. Right. Yeah, there's no trappings of... It was, there's nothing reductive about the film. It was all just laid out in real time for us especially with this conversation about you know filler or not filler um they never show any of their train journeys anywhere i don't think maybe there's one shot at some point but i don't think there is um and which you know since so much of the story is like the times the train are arriving and when are they gonna arrive and who's meeting them where and all this like never a shot on the train And then also they don't show when the mom gets sick on the train and has to get off. And this whole like, you know, turning point of the film when it goes from just being about their visit to Tokyo to like, oh, their mom is, you know, very ill and potentially dying. I just thought it was so interesting that like there's shots of people, you know, okay, you got to see them walk up the stairs. You got to see this. You got to see that, which I appreciated and liked. But then these like huge parts of the film are also left out. Um, obviously like artistic choice of the director, but it's just interesting that that's what they chose. And I thought it was how Keizo was then introduced, but to lay out the story of this, the bigger, the third act in that way from this new character um, was surprising. And I, I never really thought of the fact that they didn't show any of the train stuff before. I think that's so smart that you noticed that. I know that I appreciate that because I get so anxiety ridden whenever I have to go anywhere. So I was able to just keep the calm pace of the film. There is one shot on the train at the very end, which was my, I think it was probably my favorite shot when um, Noriko is leaving the town to go back to Tokyo and she has the watch that um, the father-in-law had given her and she's just sitting on the train and you see, you also see the train you see the train itself leaving the town, running through the town and like leaving and going back to Tokyo. And that I thought that was very sort of indicative of just like, yeah, this way of life is sort of dying. These people are dying. She's leaving. She's going back. She's going back to like the modern, you know, city and that that life. And I thought it was really sad. And it, that, that shot really affected me for Aww. whatever reason. <laughs> it started with that train shot too like yeah at the beginning it was like an it recurred throughout the movie what did everybody think of the it's called the tatami mat shot which basically like i think alicia was talking about it before sort of of everything is sort of shot from a low angle as if you were sitting on one of those mats with them like basically everything is shot that way I think it was at the beginning when I was sort of getting used to how the shots were. I just sort of say, this is what the director decided to do. And I felt like it was like, I keep saying the word intimate, but it felt like you were part of the family just by being that low to it. And I accepted it as, you know, everybody was sort of spatially 
like laid out so that it felt like you were almost watching them on television or you were part of it. So I, I liked it a lot more that way. And even when you did get the close-ups of people, it still felt like that. So mm -hmm. I, I just liked how that was shot. Yeah, I was just gonna say, I think I didn't realize it while I was watching it that that's what was going on. And then I guess I like looked at the Wikipedia or something afterward and I read it and I was like, oh, uh -huh. yeah, <laughs> that's what was, that's another thing that was like throwing me off a little bit, I think from the beginning. Hmm. Um, but I think, yeah, in retrospect, it, it does sort of put you on the same, it's, it's almost as if you're a person that's sitting down in their room observing or being with them. I liked it. Mm -hmm. That's why I like when they'd leave the room and come back or go other places. I just felt like I was really following along, like I was part that, you know, I was there as mm -hmm. well. So I, I just like that way that they kind of told the story or when you saw different places or rooms. I know you guys mentioned close-ups, but what I noticed were there's a lot of two-person shots, like uh, close medium shots of two people talking or sitting next to each other. And it was all on that same length, the mm -hmm. level of where they, their eyes were of sitting down. And I've never seen anything quite like that before. There were a lot of shots of two people facing the same direction, yeah. but mm -hmm. not each yeah. other, but having conversations mm -hmm. while they're facing, like they're both looking out the same window and mm -hmm. talking to each other while they're both looking out the window or looking at the sea or whatever it is. And that's not something that you see very often either. Yeah. I liked them when they were both kneeling down, like the, the the parents, and they were talking to each other, but they were kind of like next to each other. I think mm -hmm. that happened at the very beginning of the movie. And, mm -hmm. it, right. you know, I just really liked the way that that was laid out. It just was much more interesting than some of the other ways that I've seen in Western movies that would have played out. It, I really liked it. Yeah, I, I loved the dynamic between the old couple. I just thought they were like so sweet. And I assumed you know, because I think they said towards the end, she's like in her late 60s. So like, you know, maybe he's a few years older or something. So they've probably been together for like 40 plus years. And I just thought as like horrendous as their children were that they were so sweet to each other and like just so kind of accepting and like, you know, I mean, which for better or worse, but like the mom when he goes off and gets drunk is just kind of like, oh, yeah, OK, whatever. Like, oh, he used to drink a lot. And, you know, so maybe there's some like willful, willful looking away from the bad spots but I kind of feel like if you want to stay married to someone for however long you do kind of have to do that and so I just thought they would like <laughs> says someone okay guys been married for three months <laughs> <laughs> um four months sorry um, <laughs> erasure <laughs> um but yeah, I just thought that like they were, and I think those those scenes of them sitting side by side and still like talking to each other just were, I don't know, it really touched my heart a lot. It was very sweet. Yeah, I did wonder what their young, their youthful dynamic was because- I wonder that too. Yeah, yeah <laughs> because yeah, he was drinking a lot and and the, I felt really bad for the mother pretty much throughout the whole movie because- um, I mean, obviously, like you feel bad for both of them when the kids are kind of dismissive or can't spend time with them or whatever. But then the pretty much the first thing that the daughter says to her is, mm -hmm. oh, you're, you've gotten fatter. And oh, you were fat when I was young, too. And I was very embarrassed by you. Yeah. I mean, who, who? She broke the chair. That? Yeah, she broke the chair. <laughs> Why would you bring that up? Why would you say that? And then she just she's just so sweet. And all these things just kind of happen around her and happen to her. And and yeah I, I, I she was sort of the punching bag yeah and then she died 
just it was very sad for her well there's not yeah the most, and the more i think about it i think well maybe it's just a lot of anger for her letting all this stuff happen all these years and not being more proactive so now they can just yeah walk all over her and, well in a way it felt like at the end the dad was in a worse position because they were just like well if mom had lived and dad had died we would have taken the mom to tokyo but you know, now he's alone and everybody's like, you're just going to be alone. It's just going to be all you. And that to me was, it's of course, dying is the worst thing that could happen to you. But it just felt like his decline was going to be just like not seen by anybody. And he was just going to be there. They do have that youngest daughter that lives with them. So she's still at least That's there true. with them. And the nosy but, neighbor. Yeah, the neighbor came by and said, like, you know, you're going to be alone, right? Like, it felt yeah. like she was sort of saying yeah. that. Well, and that's what I kind of thought, like going back to the like, they're smiling even while they're saying these things that are like really sad or not very kind or just not something you would have like a huge grin on your face about. Like it was kind of like that. So I was like, okay, is this just this like you say it in this way to mm -hmm. lighten it or something like that? Even though, again, I'm not an expert on Japanese culture, please someone out there listening to this who yeah. does know, let yeah. us know. Mm -hmm. This yes. is just my assumption <laughs> let here. Let us know. Yeah. yeah, there was some there was some scene where the mom was like, "It's a treat to sleep in my dead son's bed," and that I just wasn't. Yeah. No, I just was really like, maybe there's a translation thing, or yeah. maybe that's like yeah. culturally something that's yeah. But for me, it just really took me out of it. So there yeah. were certain things that I was curious, like what it really we're trying to say. And maybe there is something. I did wonder about some of the translation stuff. I was kind of losing my mind at the end because they kept being like oh, she must be really sick. And I was like, yeah, the damn telegram said critical. Like, get me on the train. Like, oh, my God. And I, you know, we were like kind of laughing about it. And I was like, OK, yeah, we, we just, just chalked it up to like translation error with like the words, they the, the English words they chose for the subtitles. But I, I think it was also maybe that they just didn't want to go. So they're like, so oh, yeah, of course. Is it serious or can we just stay here in Tokyo and live our lives? Like, yeah. I, I, it, I think there was some of that. True. It's like, you know, I keep bringing my own personal thing about that. But I remembered when my mother was like, she wasn't going to make it. And I was going to the funeral and I was like, or I was going to see her. And I was like, should I bring a suit? You know, because I wasn't sure if there was going to be a funeral. And I was just like, I, if I bring it, then that means that she's definitely going to die. So I didn't, and she died, and then mm -hmm. I didn't have a suit. So then you feel like guilty for even thinking something like that. Mm -hmm. So I can understand like that whole dynamic, which comes back to you know you could see yourself in a lot of the characters that were in that movie. But yeah, it was just kind of an interesting yeah. thing for them to say. That that made me think of the the fact that the studio itself that made this movie thought it was quote, too Japanese to go to mm -hmm. the international market. And I, I find that so ironic because I think that's the exact opposite is is how this movie has come to be known, that it's it's so beloved by so many critics and filmmakers around the world because it is such a universal story, mm -hmm. even while it is so specific about these people and where they are. But like you can see your own story in it. And it's just kind of wild to me that someone thought that at the time that it just wouldn't translate culturally or, or just the people wouldn't relate to it or something. It's, it's, I don't know, just kind of shocking to me. But. I kind of chalked that up to like the stuff we've kind of already talked about as far as like the trappings of the film and not the story, mm -hmm. just like the pace and the, the camera angles and the, 
yeah, the, the sort of the, the, the little cultural things that we've all brought up that like, we just, we don't, we don't quite get, right. but sure. I mean, how better to learn about a culture <laughs> than to be exposed to it and expose people to it? You know, like, I, I think that that's a really stupid criticism. Well, I also think at the time, like, so the movie came out in 53, it was still like, mm-hmm. so post World War Two, I think people it's then yeah. going to see movies had a very different attitude about like the Japanese culture and people than we do today. Um, like, I don't, when I think about Japanese culture, World War Two is not something that pops into my mind. But obviously, for people who had just fought in the war and lost mm-hmm. people and stuff, and it was different. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I guess also, even though I'm the one who made the argument that they were stupid for thinking this way, like, I guess they are still a studio. So it's understandable that they're going to look at what they have, look what did well before. They're going to see Kurosawa's movies are doing well with an international market and an American market. They're going to think, oh, we need more movies like that to go out there. And those will sell there and those will do well. The, and basically Kurosawa, you know, was making movies that were so influenced by the West already. So I could see why they'd think uh yeah like the 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 style of the movie sure i get doesn't necessarily translate right away we've all talked about how you know the things that we noticed about it and all but the the story itself though to me is still universal so it's it's just kind of a shame that it took them a while to to see that it could have an impact but um i'm glad that they eventually moved it over there yeah yeah yeah. I think it's sort of like what we talked about with the Magnificent Ambersons too. It's just like it was such a failure when the people watched it in um in in the test screenings. It was just like they weren't used to seeing something played out in that way. And of course you can't really compare the two movies, but it's sort of like what you said about you know, the studios, they're there to make money. And if it doesn't grab somebody within the first like 10, 15 minutes, why would we even put our money behind something like this? Mm-hmm. So it might have been a case like this, because I think all of us, it's not everybody uh, you know, that's doing a podcast right now it was sort of like you needed to really pay attention to it at first to get into it. And sometimes I think that people just don't give it a chance like that. Right. Can I say something else about the trains? Please do. <laughs> I would love to hear that. <laughs> well, I was thinking about it a lot when you're watching, when, when I was watching the movie, because it's like, it's clearly such a long, I don't think they ever quite say, but it's like an overnight train ride. And I think like a day and a half, basically. It's like they're getting, they're waiting for the train, I think like almost 8 p.m. when they're leaving. And they say something about getting there at like 1.30 the next One, day or yeah. something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so it's like, that's like such a long train ride. But I was thinking like, okay, when there wasn't a train, they never would have gone to, to, it would have been like days journey by horse and buggy, I guess, or, you know, horse and cart or something. Um, I don't know how people. I think there's a scene where they talk about that. Is there? Okay. Yeah. And, and, but it just made me think too, like, you know, today in Japan, like they're so known for having these bullet trains and everything so fast. And like, I don't think of Japan as being this huge place, even though I know like it is, but I think my impression of that comes from like, oh, there's these trains and you can get to all the major cities. So just thinking again about like the, you know, the progress and the moving forward, the post-war era, and also about our terrible infrastructure here in this country. (laughs) Um. Well, I did look up the distance and I think it said it took four and a half hours for a train, but it took nine hours if you drove to their house from Tokyo to where they- Today. A couple of- Maybe today. The yeah, I looked it up on Google. Yeah. Like yeah. I looked it up on Google. Yeah. So with, right. So that's why I was just saying, like, you know, the, the progress is definitely different now. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. And, and even cool driving that you is did probably, that though. 
I was just curious because I wasn't sure where they were situated. <laughs> well, I watched the movie twice. And so the second time I was like, how far is it? <laughs> so then I just looked it up. And of course, it's by today. But I was just saying in terms of like progress, it's still nine hours to drive, though. So what was everyone's favorite scene or moment or element of the movie? Well, there's one scene I did like when they were at the spa and like the young people were having a really good time. I really enjoyed that. And they were kind of like, why are we here? You know, because it just felt like, you know the times have kind of passed and that's what's happening, but you still saw like some liveliness going on there. I, I just like that scene for some reason. And then also the scene where they were sitting outside of the spa and the water was there and they were just sitting on the, I think it was like a wall. For some reason that really struck me. I just really loved that. I loved it when they went their separate ways because um, the daughter kicked them out for the night and this the father got drunk with his two um, friends and what all that was uncovered and said and the flirting with the inappropriate flirting with the, the waitress and I, and then cutting that to Noriko and the mom, you know, and having their quiet, emotional, connected night. Um, I thought that was my favorite part of the film that evening. I don't know if this is my favorite part, but one scene that will definitely stick with me is when they're all eating lunch or dinner after the funeral and the older son and older daughter are like <clears throat> oh no yeah we gotta go soon and then the son that had just come in from Osaka is like oh yeah no I can stay oh wait but no if you guys are leaving I'll just go with you and I was just like oh my god like and then the older daughter is like oh where's that linen kimono and like oh where's that and it just to me it was just so like oh my god she's like literally not even cold on the ground or like barely cremated if that's what they were doing but like just you know and you're just being such total shits and like just you can't even give your dad like 24 hours here. So it's so gross. But how many times have we all seen that with someone who's passed? Yes. Yes. Like, yes. Where's mom's like, pearls? Seriously? Yeah. We're doing this now? <laughs> yeah. 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 Oh, no. And I, it felt very like, I think I've been at this table before. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I can't tell you. It's kind of interesting. Like watching this. I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> um, well, I, I really liked two things the straight to camera shots which there were a lot of and kind of took me aback in the beginning of the movie because i didn't know those were going to be part of this um i always associate straight to camera shots with uh jonathan demi who's famous for using them in his movies like he he always likes to try to have one shot at least in, a, in any scene where you get into a character's pov but these aren't pov shots they're not from any character's perspective it's or, or maybe they are, but it's not like that's not the purpose of it. It's just sort of this different way of presenting the characters. And I also really liked when the kids were gathering in their hometown and after the mother had passed and they were gathered around her body, the shot was just the striking shot where every person was in the perfect place in the frame. And it just sort of made me realize how good Ozu is at just composing a shot. I'd already noticed that plenty in the film, but like this was just the stunning shot of, uh, I don't know how many people were in there at that point, like five people. Um, and, and it's just so, such a good shot. Yeah. It's beautiful. I, cool. I, as I mentioned, yeah, mine was just the train, the Noriko on the train leaving at the end. Like, With the watch. Yeah. That was beautiful. I mean, she was beautiful. You could just watch her 
mm-hmm. air. Mm-hmm. It just kind of summed up the whole concept. It just kind of summed up the whole thing of the whole movie for me. Uh, you know, it sounds like we all enjoyed this movie. Um, sounds like we think it more or less stood the test of time. I mean, I think for, for some of these movies, it's going to be like, why are we asking that question? There's a reason it's been on this list at the top of the list or near it for so long. I think once we get deeper into the series, there'll be movies that no one's heard of that we might watch. And like, it'll be a little more interesting uh, with those. But I guess like, is there any more to be said about how this movie resonates with us today? Or do we just let what we've already said speak for itself? I suppose there's, especially with things like Nomadland getting all these awards talking about those films mostly are older people Mm. and it's just the idea of capitalism and, and what happens with the elderly could be, you know, something that we could go into, but I don't necessarily know if that's like a whole other, you know, can of worms that we might not necessarily want to, you know, but I think that there is an idea of the discarded um, and how, society deals with them and how that's still very relevant versus different ways of dealing with it in different cultures. Right. I mean, look at COVID and especially like the New York nursing home scandal going on yeah. right now and stuff. It's just like expendables. Yeah. Totally. Unfortunately. Yeah. You know, just terrible. Expendables unless they're like in Florida, for example, they were for so long were the only people or at least mainly the only people being vaccinated were elderly people. And it's like expendables, except when you need their votes for things, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which is just like so despicable to me. So um, if anybody if nobody has anything else to say about Tokyo Story right now, um, Mia, you had our bonus question for this week. Do you want to? Yeah. So the bonus question was, what movie setting made you want to travel there? And have you actually gone or not? And I thought of this because when we were last recording, Alicia was talking about how she'd been to Japan. So she was excited to see this movie. And I have missed traveling so much this past year. Um, you know, normally I travel a lot for work and travel a lot for fun. And so many movies have made me want to go to places um so yeah that was why i had the question and i thought we had some really good responses everyone wants to go to italy apparently (laughs) apparently yeah (laughs) uh well do we want to share our answers yeah we do mia you go oh my god my list was so long um i I don't want to go first there was just so many narrow down yeah i know let me think for a minute someone else go first laura i wanted to pick a really like cool Godard film, you know, and go with Paris, which I'd never been, but I have to be truthful. And I picked a movie that I is not a favorite. It's a good rom-com. It's called Singles. It came out in 1992, um, <sighs> based in Seattle, it's interwoven friends dating each other scene thing. And I was 17 when it came out. I was living in Queens. I was fucking miserable. And, you know, the world, even though New York, you think it's just the be all end all of everything, but there's there's quite provincial areas. And I felt very sequestered with a whole bunch of people that I didn't understand or know. And 
I just remember watching that movie and not relating to the characters as much as I related to everyone else in the room, like at the clubs, the music, and just knowing that I had to go there at some point. And I did. I spent about six and a half years in Seattle after I got out of college. That was mine. And Steven? I did put one in the uh, in the Facebook page that it was true, but the real one <laughs> that I that I was it's room with a view, and because everybody was saying Italy, I you know I thought I'd be a little bit different, um, but it is room with a view, and um, it's funny because I was actually in Florence when I saw that for the first time, um, so it was really great because we that was the movie that they introduced you to Florence with when my your abroad program. And it was so gratifying to watch something and then being able to walk outside and see exactly what you saw on the screen. So it was just like, it made me want to go there, but at the same time, I was actually there. So it was Bonus. Really great. Yeah. <laughs> great. Uh, well, I was one of the people who said Italy because of the Steve Coogan uh, movie Trip to Italy, second in that series of his movies. The second one, not the first one? The second one. Uh, the wow. first one was just going around England, which I still want to go okay. to. But the the second one was the one where I was like, why have I not go to, gone to any of these places before? And when am I going? Because um, it's just beautiful vistas and amazing food, which is what those movies are based around. Um, if you haven't seen them, I, I do recommend them. They're probably not for everybody. Uh, but I enjoy them. And uh, Alicia, what about you? I love all three of your picks and I love Italy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But that's not my choice because I have been there. But um, my choice was the movie Shirley Valentine, which I saw when I was like, I think I was like 13 when I saw it. And it's just basically, it's kind of like how Stella got her groove back before how Stella got her group back. It's like the white middle-aged British lady that is tired of her husband and tired of her kind of boring life, kind of middle-class life. And she goes on a trip to Greece with her friend and her friend just basically meets a guy and abandons her as soon as they get there. And then she kind of goes and does her own thing and she meets someone too. And it's so beautiful. Even still, if I see it now, the, the, beauty of Greece is just still so uh it's just it just makes me want to go there so much it just really yeah I I I just love it and I still have never been to Greece so that's still on my bucket list hopefully someday yeah so I had a whole list online but I'm gonna go old school and when I was a kid I loved Raiders of the Lost Ark it was like hands down my favorite movie um and I have always wanted to go to Egypt. I was like really into mummies and that stuff when I was a kid too. My friend and I would like mummify bugs in the yard, you know, mummify, quote unquote, bugs in the yard. How, like, how does, does one that mummify? Mean? <laughs> yeah, well, I know, like, tell us more. We would like find dead bugs and then we would get um, flower petals and like mash them for like the juices and we were like oh we're like anointing the body and would like wow. wrap it up in leaves and have like so burials creepy. yeah i know i like a love lot of work. it it's like a lot of work <laughs> <man>. <laughs> um 
But yeah, it was like making mud pies. <laughs> I mean that too. But yeah, I'm sure there was like some mud. I feel like we were the, we were either playing Little House on the Prairie, which if this question was what book setting makes you want to go places, Little House on the Prairie would definitely be my that whole series love obsessed still. Um, but anyways, yeah, I just have always wanted to go to Egypt. There's probably other places that they filmed. Um, Raiders of the Lost Ark that are not, I think it was like Tunisia actually too when I was looking this up. Um, but yeah, haven't made it there yet. Would really, really love to go. Um, so yeah. You have to go now. Mm-hmm. I mean, you got to mummify <laughs> some bug. Oh my God. Mummify <laughs> me when I'm gone, please. <laughs> no thanks. Save up for that sarcophagus now, I guess. Right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you know what Mia's final wishes are. <laughs> Play like somewhere we're discussing out this there. Now. And <laughs> um, how did we not know before? I was also Rad. surprised because when when I was talking to Jeremiah about this and was like, "Oh, I have my question." I was like, "So many people are going to say New York stuff because I feel like for so many of us who didn't grow up in New York but moved there, it's like you see it in movies, you see it in music, you see it in all this, and." I realized for me, probably like my moving to New York thing would be like Sex in the City, obviously not a movie. Um, but yeah, I was just surprised given the- that people didn't say that. Yeah, given you, you want to know why they didn't? <laughs> it's because Woody Allen's petty file. Yeah, nobody wants to talk about those movies, even though they're amazing and they, you know, he's the only person who's ever made movies in New no, York. No, <laughs> those are the best. I mean, those. Mm. I hate him, but yeah. those movies are incredible. I did wonder if that was part of it. or I think it is. Yeah. Or also I figure like a lot of people in New York have just been trapped there for the last year. So they might be more like Italy, (laughs) Greece. Like Like, why did this movie make me want to move here? Yeah. (laughs) Um, So we posed the question, of course, to our Facebook group. And here are some of the answers we got. Uh, Becky said before sunrise made her want to see Vienna. And so far she has not yet. So I guess we encourage Mm -hmm. her to do that when she can. Uh, Justin said a bigger splash did it for him. What uh, movie is that? I I have not seen it, so I couldn't tell you. But it is set in Italy, so oh, okay. no, another vote for Italy. Jess said Rome because of the lovely Roman holiday, so another vote for Italy. Mm. Um, Charlie said must be something about Italy. There's a web page marking some of the locations of bicycle thieves, and when he was in Rome, he hunted down most of them, and they were reasonably accessible. I would do that. That's, That's a me. really cool thing to do. Yeah. <laughs> and then Gavin, uh, jokingly, I guess, said 2001 because he hasn't made it to Jupiter yet. Also, the Lord of the Rings. And he said he would actually love to go to New Zealand. Um, and a couple of TV shows also deepened that urge. Uh, so our next episode is my pick. It's Rashomon. It's directed by Akira Kurosawa. It was released in 1950 in Japan and came here to the United States in 1951. It is available to watch with an HBO Max or Criterion Channel subscription, and it's also rentable on Amazon or Apple TV. And like we said before, the Stereoactive Movie Club isn't supposed to be just the five of us chatting. We want it to be an open discussion for people who want to be included. So please do watch Rashomon and share your thoughts. You can do that by joining our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash Stereoactive Movie Club, or you can email us at stereoactivemovieclub at gmail.com, or you can send us a voice message at our show page at anchor.fm slash stereoactivemovieclub. So bye, everybody. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye. This podcast is produced by Stereoactive Media. Stereoactive Media.